Talking History on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're Talking History on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the history of Paris, one of the most romantic cities in the world. And we'll be finding out why, over the course of its long history, it has variously been described as a prison, a paradise, and even a vision of hell. And to help me do this, I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Professor Colin Jones of the School of History at Queen Mary, the University of London, is an expert on the social and cultural history of France and the history of Paris, and he's the author of Paris, Biography of a City, and his new book is The Fall of Robespierre. Professor Joan Dijon is trustee professor of Romance Languages at the University of Pennsylvania and is an expert on 17th and 18th century French literature, and she's the author of How Paris Became Paris, The Invention of the Modern City. Professor Christopher Prendergast is Professor Emeritus in French at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of the British Academy and is a leading expert on French literature and cultural history and his books include Writing the City, Paris and the 19th Century. Professor Andrew Hussey is Professor of Cultural History at the University of London and is an expert on French language and literature and contemporary history and his books include Paris, the Secret History. Well, you're all very welcome and later in the show I'll be talking to Dr Mary McAuliffe, an expert on the history and culture of Paris and the author of Paris City of Dreams and Professor David Garriac, Emeritus Professor of Monash University in Australia and the author of The Huguenots of Paris and the Coming of Religious Freedom. Well, a stellar panel tonight and Andrew, I might begin with you and this idea of Paris being a city of contrasts and you've explored how over its almost 2,000 year history it's sometimes seen as a city of light, sometimes as a city of darkness and there are those contrasts in how it's viewed. Yeah, I'm, I'm very careful about sort of anything that says city of contrast because that's like one of the biggest cliches in travel writing or history writing that you can ever come across. I would replace that with something like Paris is a, 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 a load of interlocking different atmospheres. And when I first came to Paris, it wasn't to look for the beautiful, romantic, um, you know, 19th century version of the city or 18th century version of the city. I came to buy records in the northern part of the city because I was in a band in Liverpool and we wanted to buy the coolest records that no one in Liverpool had got. So I went to the North African district of Barbes and I suddenly fell in love with something that didn't even seem European at the time. And that's what started me off really on the journey to, to sort of discovering French literature and, and discovering the excitement, which I still think is very much alive in Paris. And I think one of the, I'll just finish with, with another cliche. I think one of the cliches of, of Paris is the, that it comes from the Anglo-American world, is that it's, it's somehow a museum. It's kind of like, you know, it's lost in the past. Well, I've lived in Paris for the past 15 years, and it's, it's definitely not a museum. It's actually a living component part, uh, very much so, of the uh, 21st century. Well, Andrew, I love the shooting down of the cliches and maybe that's one of the problems that we have when we when we take on a subject like the history of Paris that there are all of these cliches and sometimes they're so dominant like, for example, the idea of it being the most romantic city in the world and we have the image of the Eiffel Tower in so many programmes and movies set in Paris that sometimes the cliché overshadows, I suppose, the history and the reality. Yeah, but I mean, I mean that 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 that's always going to happen in in the world of globalisation and mass tourism, and it's a kind of Disneyfication of of the city. Having said that, 
Paris was always, you know, from the Middle Ages onwards, it was always a kind of, uh, you know, a place for pilgrims to go to, for scholars to go to. It was a magnet across Europe, and it wasn't, you know, just simply a French phenomenon. So, in a sense, um, you know, I'm using this phrase, the society, the spectacle, which I've borrowed from one of my favorite French theorists, which is Guy Debord, when he talks about the image replacing the reality. I think it's much more exciting in Paris to get beyond the, the cliches, to get beyond the image and get to the reality, which is often a lot scuzzier, but more exciting than people think. Joan, what is it that makes a city great? And what is it about Paris that has captured the imagination of people and continues to capture the imagination of people all over the world? I, I think I agree totally with the sense that the image of Paris is a long one. It's endured through the centuries. I decided to work on the 17th century under Louis XIV, that real huge remodeling of the city, because I was interested in the fact that I think they were consciously trying to make the city great. I think... Cities can be marketed and can be cre- recreated in a certain way. And Louis XIV is always associated with Versailles and the creation of a great court and that great palace. But he consciously set out um, to work on changing Paris's image and to make it a city people would want to visit in a new way so that it was no longer just a city of pilgrims or scholars, etc., but a city open to a broader and broader class, one could say, or category of visitors. And in a way, thanks to all of that urban planning, Paris was transformed into the first great walking city of Europe. Yes. I mean, there really is, there was an enormous effort placed on making a city that could be negotiated in various ways. So opening up, I think people think of boulevards and associate them with Osman and the 19th century, but the great first great boulevard is that I didn't, it was an enormous project, beginning at the Bastille and circling all around the northern half, what we still know, see as boulevards, but creating that in the 1660s was an enormous project, and they made it not only a place where, the, where vehicles, carriages, of course, at the period, could circulate, but with walkways, um, planned walkways with trees, etc., on both sides of it. So it was a city intended to, which intended to walk around Paris and admire the space in the city and see people be out in the streets, not only in carriages, as the elites always traveled in carriages before, but now people are on their feet and exploring the city and viewing the city. And I wonder, Joan, did things like uh, changes to uh, lighting, to transportation, did that affect how uh, Paris was was lived in for the inhabitants and, and especially for women because perhaps they could do things they weren't able to do before? I, I agree with you totally, Patrick. Everyone could. To begin, street lighting in the late 1660s is an extra, was an extraordinary idea and all kinds of people remarked on it. Merchants were thrilled because before this, when they closed up their shops at the end of the day and had to go home, they were always worried in those dark streets carrying the proceeds from the day on their persons. But with street lighting, it's a much safer place because people can can walk about at night with less fear. And women took advantage of this. And we know that women were out in the streets of Paris much more, much earlier, and decades before they were in the streets of any other city, for example, London. And and transportation did this. I mean, it's almost comical to think of how small it was, but nevertheless, four bus lines in Paris in the 1660s, that's something. You know, a bus line, they're carriages, horse-drawn carriages, but with regular stops on planned routes. 
everyone. There are many letters, for example, from women talking about this because they could then travel distances in the city, even alone, and feel that they were safe because this was a, a you know, there, were, there was protection from this uh, means of transportation. Colin, you've written the biography of the city and uh, the thing that uh, that struck me was just how much history has taken place and how many remarkable and extraordinary events have taken place in the city. And, you know, we don't have, we could do a hundred hours of the show uh, taking our listeners from Roman Paris all the way up to the Paris of the 21st century. But it does seem to have a, a, a remarkably high number of of highs and lows and 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 great events happening in it. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. And um, I think if you stood at almost anywhere in a sort of central part of uh, Paris and looked around and just was aware of what was in a sort of 100-yard uh, uh, radius where you were, you'd get an incredible chunk of, uh, a layered chunk in some ways, of Parisian history through the ages. The place I always go to uh, when I'm thinking about this is actually... Uh, uh, in the Marais, if, you, if I'm sure thousands and tens of thousands of tourists have uh, walked down the Rue des Francs-Bourgeois between the Pompidou Centre uh, and the Place des Vosges, and there's a little square there where if you stand there, you will be standing very close to the first medieval wall. In fact, you would have passed the first medieval wall about 100 yards away. Uh, you will be in the Rue des Hospitalières, that's the nursing hospital sisters of Saint-Gervais, so reminding us that you know, religious institutions were really important in the history. But moreover, this was uh, this was uh, market gardens, etc. Really, for the late medieval and well into the early modern period. In 1407, uh, there's a sort of assassination just just opposite the, the street there uh, in the war of uh, the, the Hundred Years' War. Uh, the poor man is left with his blood uh, uh, all over the pavement. We uh, we're told we can see the pavement, but no longer the blood. This is an area which was then built up uh, as a, a sort of fancy place in the 17th century and all the great uh, private mansions are still there. Uh, you then see in the 19th century, it's sort of taken over because it's going down in the world, be the, the, the West is going up and uh, it's taken over particularly by immigrants and particularly by Jewish immigrants. In the late 19th century, it becomes the sort of sweatshop of Paris and indeed the, uh, uh, the nation, this big, big uh, Jewish uh, identity, you still see it. You get the finest falafels in Paris and probably the uh, uh, France uh, just about uh, 50 yards away from where you would be uh, standing. You'd also be standing next to a school, uh, which um, uh, reminds us that uh, during the Nazi occupation, over a thousand children were taken away uh, from the schools of that uh, quartier, that uh, neighborhood, uh, and went to Auschwitz and never came back. Uh, those uh, those uh, traces of the past are still there. They remind us of the violence, if you like, which is still there. Since the 1960s, we've seen a sort of renaissance of the area. First, uh, it's become a big gay place. There's a big sort of gay, gay nightclub, gay hangouts and everything like that. But also from the 60s, uh, it's, it was renovated. And this museumification that Andrew mentioned earlier is very striking. You know, the way in which places are done up, the really beautiful, the beautification, the hotel... Uh, Carnavale, which is the history, um, the, the, the um, uh, Museum of the History of Paris, has just been renovated. It's a wonderful place to go to. And this sense of, a, you know, almost anywhere in central Par Paris, you'll see the sort of stratifications of the past, the violence, the pleasures, uh, the pains uh, and, and, and all the rest of it. 
And Colin, you could tell the history of the city through its people, but you could also tell the history perhaps through its buildings. And there are so many iconic landmarks and buildings from the the Eiffel Tower to the the Arc de Triomphe, uh, the Louvre, uh, you know, so many great museums, Notre Dame, so many great churches and cathedrals that, you know, it almost would be impossible if you were there for a week to, to visit them all. Yeah, that's the trouble, the excess, the profuseness of, uh, of these monuments and these wonderful buildings. But if most of us think about Paris, we probably do think of the Eiffel Tower and, uh, and the rest. But we also have a particular sense of a type of Parisian street with a type of stone, that Parisian stone, that sort of uh, creamy stone, or the pastor of Paris, which is on many of the old buildings uh, as well. And, and also the height of the buildings is very same. It's been the same, really. It's one of the lowest cities in the world, actually, if you if you look uh, uh, at other cities, very very few skyscrapers in the central uh, parts. Just been forbidden, uh, in fact. But what I like about Paris as well is that there are some of these great monuments really do break the mold. Uh, I mean, when the Eiffel Tower was built, you know, people famously said it was the most unparisian and ridiculous object uh, uh, that, that had ever been existed. The writer Maupassant famously liked uh, dining in the restaurant uh, up the Eiffel Tower because he said it was the only place you, you, in Paris you couldn't see the monstrosity. And then at the end of the uh, century as well, just after it, 10, year, 10, 15, 20 years after it, you've got the Basilica of Montmartre built, you know, which again is like the most bizarre building, which is uh, sort of in Paris, which breaks every Parisian rule that we sort of uh, know about. And these two sort of uh, enormously out of scale and odd buildings stare across Paris from uh, Montmartre down to the, uh, uh, the, the left bank there. A similar reaction actually happened with the Pompidou Centre. I mean, again, if you look at the Pompidou Centre, and I did see the Pompidou Centre when it was being built, everyone thought this is the most ridiculous thing ever. This is just a blot on the landscape of Paris. Now we see it as one of the great uh, charms. So a sort of sense of building and style and a continuity of style, but also an ability to break the mould and break the mould in memorable uh, ways. Chris, we also associate great art and great literature with Paris. And there are so many great writers whose, whose lives and, and, and whose works are connected so much, so intimately with Paris that you see it, especially in the 19th century that you've written about, but I suppose you see it across other, other centuries as well. And that's an important part of the story as well. Of course it is. It's absolutely critical, crucial feature of the story. Um, as for the place of Paris in literature and the place of literature in Paris, I mean, run it, you could run this all the way back to uh, the late Middle Ages, François Villon and others, um, but I'm going to stick to what I know best here, which is uh, the history of 19th century Paris, literary Paris, um, and I hope that's okay with you for a restricted Joan. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. Delighted to hear because the 19th century is, is, you know, in a way, Paris is becoming the literary capital of the world at that time. Well, to say that Paris was becoming the literary capital of the world is to make a very, very strong claim about Paris. Uh, A more accurate representation of it would be that Paris was defined principally by Parisians as the capital of the world initially. It was a famous 19th century trope indulged in by many writers and thinkers, including Victor Hugo. Um, uh, And then later morphed into Walter Benjamin's somewhat more modest yet still seriously ambitious description of Paris as just the capital of the 19th century. Now, the place of literature 
uh, in that representation of Paris as a cultural and literally megacenter of the modern world, um, the role of literature in that story is crucial, but not, it needs to be emphasized as some sort of publicity campaign in support of some version or other of the tourist industry. I mean, it wasn't a form of marketing of Paris in the 17th century that uh, Joan briefly outlined, 17th century sense that Joan briefly outlined for us. Um, and I think myself, it's best probably to see this whole question of literature and Paris uh, as a kind of, in terms of a kind of dialectical marriage in which each feeds off the other. On the one hand, Paris is a source of nourishment for literature, but literature in turn became a shaper of how Paris came to be seen and understood, while at the same time raising major questions as to whether it could any longer be clearly seen or coherently understood at all. And Chris, it's very interesting when you look at the 19th century, you know, you see the the, the cafes and their connection with what's going on uh, with the cultural and literary scene as well. And there always seems to be that very close marriage there as well. Uh, well, yes. Then you put your finger on another major nerve centre of, of the Parisian tale, at least the 19th century version of it. But it's not uniquely 19th century. The, the importance of the café culturally and historically to the life of the city is immense and indeed runs all the way back minimally to the 17th century. And I'm sure Joan, again, would have a lot to say about that. In some respects, uh, it lies parallel to the rise of the coffee shop as a centre of intellectual and cultural life in 18th century England and Scotland. And the most famous French equivalent in the 18th century would no doubt be the Café Procope, that was frequented by Voltaire, Rousseau, and Diderot, among others. But unlike the English and Scottish coffee shops, many of the Parisian cafes also functioned as restaurants, and hence as places of greater conviviality. And perhaps the most famous in the 19th century was the Rocher de Cancale, whose orgiastic meals figure extensively in Balzac's novels. And then if we jump to the 20th century, we are confronted with a whole suite of landmark and even legendary cafes, including the De Magot, the Café de Flore, and so on, the habitués of which included Jean-Paul Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir, uh, Samuel Beckett. And finally, in the telling of this story, an abbreviated version of it, of course, uh, one should not neglect the place of the café in French painting, and especially of the 19th century. Degas, was absolutely fascinated by cafe settings, as was Manet, uh, perhaps the most famous, most enigmatic, and the most discussed of his of Manet's paintings, his Bar au Folie Bergère, a very complex weave, pictorial weave of reflections and shadows and transactions. Nobody can be quite sure who's there and what's going on in it, uh, but I fear that the analysis of that picture could easily take up this entire programme. So I'll leave it there. And indeed, that just brings home as well about uh, just how much is there in the story of Paris. And we're going to take a quick uh, break now. But when we come back, we'll be continuing our discussion of the transformation of Paris over the centuries, uh, some of the great uh, changes that have occurred and uh, looking at its legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Talking History on News Talk.
Well, welcome back to Talking History as we debate Paris, the history of a city. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor David Garriock, who's Emeritus Professor at Monash University in Australia. He's an acclaimed expert on the social history of 18th century Paris. And his books include The Huguenots of Paris and The Coming of Religious Freedom and the award-winning The Making of Revolutionary Paris. David, you're very welcome to the show. And I'd like to begin by asking you about Paris in the 18th century. How sophisticated a city was it? And was it a capital of luxury? Well, uh, it certainly was. It was, I, I guess the place to start is by explaining that it was the biggest city in Europe in 1700. Had probably about half a million people. And although it was passed by London in the course of the 18th century in terms of population, it remained absolutely unsurpassed as a cultural capital. And that was manifested in all sorts of ways. Paris, just like today, attracted people from all over the world. Walking the streets, you could see Africans, you could see Eastern Europeans, Russians, Armenians, Turks, even occasionally Chinese visitors. There were thousands of visitors, thousands of tourists. The word, in fact, dates from the 18th century, uh, every year going through Paris. And when educated Europeans thought about Paris, they thought of magnificence, of luxury, of palaces, of public squares, monuments, fashionable promenades. In some senses, a bit like today, except that the landmarks were rather different. Obviously, there was no Eiffel Tower, there, was no, there were no Haussmann boulevards, and they didn't go to Notre Dame as much as people do today because Gothic architecture was thought to be rather ugly in the 18th century. But they did go to see the Royal Trilogy Palace, they, uh, the gardens, the Louvre, the Place des Victoires, the Place Royale, which is now the Place des Vosges, they visited the Faubourg Saint-Germain with its huge noble townhouses. In fact, most of the great French noble families had houses in Paris where they lived for about eight months of, of the year. And Paris was also famous for its churches, which for tourists were the equivalent of today's museums. They contained huge numbers of paintings and sculptures by famous artists. So that was a must-see when, when you went to Paris. People were also attracted to Paris for its culture. Already in the 18th century, it was a capital of fashion. And in fact, in the late 18th century, Paris fashion merchants sent dressed up dolls around Europe, dressed in the latest fashion clothes with, with the latest hairdos, uh, so that people could see what the, uh, the latest styles were and they could place their orders and, and import them from, from Paris. Paris was also a capital of manners. The term the 18th century used for that was taste. So young English noblemen were sent to Paris to get a bit of polish, to get some refinement. Uh, the English were actually a bit anxious they might come back effeminate, but there was no question that being exposed to French manners and style would be good for them. So in terms of sophistication, yes, it's an absolutely, it's really the, the European centre in, in lots of ways. Uh, capital of luxury, the whole city's economy was based on consumer products. Now, of course, one person's luxury is another person's necessity, but even quite modest social groups own things like watches, which were, that was quite, quite unusual in 18th century Europe. 
Um, ordinary people wore leather shoes rather than wooden clogs like the peasants. And for wealthy people, Paris was the place to go for the best of almost anything, whether you were looking for a new carriage or furniture, food, gold watches, silk, lace, cosmetics, you name it. The workshops of Paris were kept busy making all of those things for princes and bishops right across Europe, but also for the local consumption within France and within Paris itself. So, David, what was daily life like then for everyone else? Uh, how challenging a city was it, for example, uh, uh, to live in for the urban poor? Yes, well, one of the leading historians of Paris, uh, Richard Cobb, once said that when he went to India and saw Calcutta, he understood 18th century Paris better. That was possibly a slight exaggeration, but Paris certainly had extremes of wealth and poverty that, that uh, in European cities today, we're not used to seeing. There were uh, swarms of beggars at the doors of all the churches. There were ragged children begging in the streets, occasionally stealing things, obviously. Uh, bad years, poor people died from diseases that they would have survived if they'd been properly fed. Now, when I say bad years, it's important to understand that in the 18th century, a poor harvest meant that basically people went hungry. The European economy of the period was still very regional, so that if you got a, a plague of locusts or a bad storm that flattened the crops or a severe frost, that might affect one area, but not another. And today we have national and international markets that smooth out those kinds of differences. But back then, although that was developing, it, it wasn't in place to the same degree. And so bad weather conditions that destroyed a crop could cause serious local shortages. Now, that wasn't as bad as it had been in the 17th century at the height of the, the so-called Little Ice Age. Um, one historian wrote, in fact, that in the 17th century, people died from poverty, whereas in the 18th century, they just suffered from it. And, and that sums it up really pretty well. So uh, life could be pretty tough in Paris. But then the city also offered a myriad ways of getting by. I've already mentioned begging, that was one. Petty crime was, was another. But some of the poor survived by gleaning. Uh, we think of gleaning as a rural activity, but they would go down to the street markets after they'd closed and they'd pick up the, the rotting fruit that had been discarded. They'd go down to the caves where firewood was stacked. It was brought down the river by boat or floated down and then stacked to dry on the river bank. And then when it was cut up and sold, we're talking about firewood here, uh, there would be wood chips left behind and the poor children uh, or poor women would, would collect it and use it in the winter to keep themselves warm or they might sell it to somebody else who was slightly less, less poor than they were. And the same sort of gleaning took place with charcoal. Again, that was brought by boat and after it was unloaded, there was dust left behind, fragments that the poor would collect. Or then unexpected things like the bark that was used by tanners. In the tanning process, the hides would be soaked with, with oak bark usually. Uh, and at the end, the used bark would be discarded. But once it was dried out and made into little kind of cakes, it could be burned didn't give a lot of heat, but it was better than nothing. So the poor would 
glean those sorts of things and then they would resell them or they would use it for themselves. And then just about everything in an 18th century city was recycled. So the clothes that were discarded by the rich would be patched and then reused. Even the food was left on the tables of the rich. Uh, servants had first go at it, but then if there was more left, it would be sold to the poor. And there was in fact a whole, a whole occupational group, uh, women called regrattières, who uh, sold used food in a sense at the, at the local market. Well, my thanks to Professor David Garriak for joining me tonight from Australia to talk to me about Paris in the 18th century. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. It has been, Patrick. Many thanks. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at Paris, the history of a city. And I'm delighted and honoured to be joined by Dr. Mary McAuliffe, who's an expert on the history and culture of Paris. And she's been acclaimed for her career defining cultural history of the city. And her wonderful books include Paris, City of Dreams, as well as When Paris Sizzled, the 1920s Paris of Hemingway, Chanel, Cole Porter, Josephine Baker and their friends, and Paris on the Brink about the 1930s. Well, Mary, let's begin with what Paris means for you. Do you consider it the most beautiful city in the world? I consider it an extremely lovely city, but what really draws me to it is the cultural richness and its history uh, and it, it, the depth of it. And it goes back. I, I feel like a, is it a geologist or an archaeologist who can send down these plums, you know, down, way down and pull, pull up these cores and give you centuries worth of, of wonderful, wonderful information and people. And it's very interesting the way Paris is is remade in so many different periods. And, you know, yeah. you've written about how it's transformed during the Second Empire. You have people like Baron Haussmann, but also Napoleon remaking the city. Of course. Yes, indeed. Uh, and that is the Paris we see today. What we don't realize is that the Paris of just 10 or 20 years before the middle of the 19th century was very different, and it was a Paris that Victor Hugo loved and memorialized in Les Miserables, but it changed with Baron Osman particularly. They tore down central and much of eastern Paris and set up these wide avenues, east-west, north-south, and set up railroad stations, big ones. We have them still today, the Gare du Nord, all of those, and linked those with each other and with the center of the city, encouraging business, uh, encouraging daylight, also making it more possible for troops to march. <laughs> so there were these, there, it was an authoritarian government, no question about it. But this is the, and the, uh, oh, I forgot, the, the uh, uniform, really, buildings that we call Osman buildings today that really characterize Paris, replaced tenements and slums that dated back to the Middle Ages. So all that was swept away, and what we have is the Paris we see today. And Mary, you've done very interesting work on on the post-World War I period. How much of an impact did that war have on Parisians? It had a tremendous impact on them. Uh, remember that France as a whole lost, I believe it was like a million and a half men uh, killed and some three million wounded in that terrible, terrible war. And that's out of a total population of around 40 million, I think somewhat less. And uh, you had this loss, you had the loss of the northern portion of France that was just decimated by the trench warfare and by the invasion. Uh, and then Paris itself suffered from refugees pouring in what to do with them, how to feed them, how to clothe them, how to house them. 
Not only that, but of course, shortages during the war and bombing because they were bombed, of course, during the war. And two battles of the Marne were fought within 40 miles of Paris. They never knew but what the city would be marched into, as it was, of course, in World War II. So yes, it had a tremendous impact on them, and they staggered out of the war and somehow not only survived, but that spark of creativity still was burst into a flame and drew others, particularly, I would say, <laughs> Brits, British, Americans flooded in because Paris was a cheap place to live then, the franc was low, the food was great, the wine flowed, and life, as always, was wonderful there. <laughs> so yes, Paris, uh, was, Paris was affected by World War I terribly, but it rose up out of it amazingly. And Mary, it is extraordinary how Paris does get transformed. And as you say, it begins to sizzle, it, it bursts into flame. And you have all of yes. these writers and philosophers and artists and musicians all in Paris in, in the 1920s. Yes, they came. And they were drawn in part by each other. Once some came, then others were drawn to it. And as I said, many came, uh, Americans came to escape prohibition. They came to escape the cost of living. They came to, they didn't have jobs at home following World War One. There were no jobs. And they came to Paris, not that there were jobs, but they could live there, survive there more cheaply. And then those from the East came to uh, escape many of them Jewish, to escape the uh, brutality, the persecution that they suffered there. So he had many, but many more followed at the Paris School, so-called, in the 20s. And uh, it was extraordinary. And Mary, if we were to have a soundtrack for Paris in the 1930s, would it be jazz? Oh, definitely. Jazz permeated everything. It was the backdrop for all the clubs, that were in Montparnasse, but also Montmartre, still everywhere. And it permeated, uh, <laughs> it permeated classical music, Darius Mio and those. And then, of course, George Gershwin came to Paris, wrote American in Paris, and Cole Porter had his start there in the 20s. So, yes, jazz was the soundtrack for it all. And Mary, then we have the impact of another war and in some ways perhaps a, a much more devastating war with the Second World War because you have yeah. uh, Paris occupied and uh, you have the Nazis in, in, in control. And again, how, how devastating was that and how did it affect the city's Jewish community? Oh, it, it decimated the city's Jewish community. Uh, those... Those who collaborated did not suffer at all, of course, until after the war. Some of them were imprisoned and worse, and some of them escaped. There was a lot of finger pointing, a lot of gray areas, too, whether one collaborated or not. But uh, as far as the Jewish community went, oh, it was just a, it was a terrible devastation. I don't know. Have you ever visited Drancy? The, uh, it was the internment camp just north of Paris. A lot of people don't know it's there. But it's an extraordinary place. It just turns your stomach and and reaches your heart. And it's where thousands and thousands of Jews from Paris and from all over France were interred before they were shoved into boxcars and shipped off to Auschwitz. So it was was a terrible, terrible time. Um, You you had, uh, you still have memorials to this in the city, many of them. And uh, you I was just trying to think of some of the best places to visit 
in the Marais, of course. But the Val d'Hiver is one of these places, and that's on the left bank, to memorialize. It was a, a bicycle racing track that was converted over to a place where all Jews in Paris were interned before they were shipped off to Drancy and then to Auschwitz. But children and old people and women and children, and they were just crammed into this place by the thousands and not fed, or, and it was in the heat of summer, and terrible. So many, many Jews lost their lives. Some escaped, escaped to America, escaped to New York, but many did not. And even now today, you can walk through the Marais, which is the heart of the Jewish community and still is today. You can see these plaques on the wall, especially in schools, the students who are memorialized there, who will never return. Okay, well, Dr. Mary McAuliffe, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about some of the the more difficult moments in Paris's history, as well as uh, some of the remarkable transformations that have taken place. And it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to. We 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 have a wonderful and brilliant historian, Dr. Mary McAuliffe, uh, here in Ireland, and it's wonderful to talk uh, to the other brilliant uh, Dr. Mary McAuliffe tonight. So, thank you very much, Mary. Thank you very much, Patrick. I appreciate it. We'll be back with more Talking History and the history of Paris, the history of the city, after this break. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History as we look at the history of Paris and explore the great transformations and changes in its history over the past centuries. And I'm rejoined now by my brilliant panel, Professor Colin Jones, Professor Christopher Prendergast and Professor Andrew Hussey. Now, Colin, can we talk about uh, fashion and style and shopping? Because uh, Paris is associated with all of those things. And I wonder when did that, uh, when did Paris become associated uh, and become seen as as a capital of fashion? Well, really, ever since the Middle Ages, ever since Paris was great, it's always been associated with the production of luxury goods. Uh, in the Middle Ages, it could be jewels, it could be gold, it could be the finest uh, textiles, it could be the finest parchments, etc., etc. And, and you've got the royal court, of course, of what becomes the greatest state in, in Europe, living in there for most of the early modern period. So that continues. It never goes away. I guess the period that Joan is really interested in is particularly important there. From the late 17th century, we really get the emergence of fashion plates, something you know where new fashions are sort of... Uh, designed and then then circulated, obviously, through, uh, through print uh, fairly widely. And this really does develop in the 18th century, where the area around Saint-Honoré, which is to the west of Paris, so sort of move, as I was saying earlier, from the east to the west, becomes the fashion centre of Europe. Uh, setting styles, again, in fashion plates, fan, fashion journalism comes in in the late uh, 18th century as well. And what really uh, triggers it, actually, is the fashion doll. And these are dolls which are sort of about two or three feet high, which are dressed in the fashion of Paris for the season, so the spring or autumn uh, uh, season. And these are produced in very large numbers and then circulated all over Europe and actually wider than Europe as well. So the world is getting to know what Paris is setting uh, as the sort of standard uh, and Paris is the place to emulate. And that sense of fashion uh, and, and style really is uh, uh, picked up by the royal court. We think of Marie Antoinette, obviously, and the great patronage that she gave to uh, a number of dressmakers in the uh, Faubourg uh, 
in the Rue Saint-Honoré, like Rose Bertin. But that really consolidates in the uh, early 19th century and through the 19th century. And the idea of passion, Paris fashion becomes something which, as mass society uh, 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 emerges, doesn't go away. Paris is always the top end. It's the sort of luxury and also semi-luxury uh, fashion style as well. Uh, and this, uh, the Paris uh, fashion setting continues through the 19th and 20th century and then really gets a renaissance uh, in the uh, after the Second World War, where you've got Christian Dior suddenly emerging from a very, very austere background, you know, terrible conditions in uh, Paris and France generally in the uh, Second World War, and suddenly a new sense of style. And then obviously you've got Yves Saint Laurent. I would recommend to uh, listeners actually the wonderful little uh, uh, museum of, uh, uh, which is actually the studio of Yves Saint Laurent, which uh, opened a couple of uh, uh, years ago, and it gives a wonderful sort of sense of of the more one of the more recent uh, uh, examples of. Uh, the stylishness of Paris fashion. Very good. And Andrew, it's interesting, even the mention of Marie Antoinette there, because we could also do this show and tell the history of Paris through politics and some of the great political changes. And one of the biggest, of course, was the French Revolution. And that had implications for the entire world. And Paris is central to the start of that story. And we think of the fall of the Bastille and we think of all of those dramatic events in 1789. And Paris is at the heart of the story. Yeah, I mean, not everybody would agree with this theory, and I'm not sure that I agree with it myself, but there is a theory. The the way French history moves is not through evolution, you know, um, slow development. It moves through a series of, of convulsions. And you can pick your dates. You can pick 1789, you can pick 1830, 1848, 1871, 1940, the fall of France, in which, in which um, you've got forces which come into you know, collision with each other and create this revolutionary cycle or circle, if you, if you see what I mean, that propels history along. And it's a very sort of, um, without sounding too pompous, it's a very Hegelian way of interpreting history. Um, I said I'm not sure that I agree with it, but it's something that a lot of Parisians believe is, um, a lot of French people believe, is central to how French history moves. And I think right now, at, at the moment in, in, in France, um, to bring it right back up to date, I think we're seeing a lot of those collisions taking place um, between the Gilets Jaunes, between the immigrant communities, and between the political um, establishment. So it's a way of interpreting history that goes back to 1789. And if you think about it, it's kind of like a kind of triangular mini civil war that's propelled French history forward. And it's interesting that you mentioned even Parisians. There's always this image and sense of Parisians that maybe people outside of of France have, and perhaps even in France, that they're almost seen as a as a distinct type of French person. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the word for a native Parisian is Parigot, which is roughly equivalent to Cockney. But you know, that accent is more or less dying out, but there are characteristics like the word guai, which is a very old word, which means a very aggressive form of sarcastic wit. And it took me years to work out living in Paris that what I was taught at school was that people said, est-ce que vous avez une cigarette, monsieur? Do you have a cigarette? But actually, people in Paris don't go like that. They go, vous n'avez pas une cigarette? And it's, it's like, why haven't you got a cigarette? You get 
You know, it's a very aggressive way of asking questions and dealing with things. And there's a, there's a phrase, l'esprit frondaire, which is a kind of slingshot wit. And you can see this in political debate and, and in journalism and, and things like that. And I think that's one of the characteristics of, of, of Parisian political culture, is this very aggressive sarcasm. But actually, beneath all of that, it's, it's, it's not quite as um, nasty as you might think. I think it's sort of interesting. I, mean, I totally agree with what Andrew says, but it's important also to bear in mind that most uh, people that we think of uh, in Parisian history, as Parisians indeed, were pro almost certainly born outside. I mean, Paris is uh, not a sort of city which recreates itself from its own inhabitants. It's always, always, always been a city of immigrants. It's always been a, a, a city of uh, uh, um, uh, sort of new people coming in, uh, new communities, new neighbourhoods uh, uh, evolving. And I think that's, um, that element is often lost. Clearly, Paris gives a style. You know, people go up there and adopt the style. And there is obviously a, a native element as, which goes right through it as well. But it, it is really important to bear in mind this sort of sense of uh, the melting pot uh, of Paris, which is uh, extremely important, I think. And do you think that melting pot... You know, it, there seems to be clashes and tensions, and it 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 doesn't seem to be as uh, it doesn't seem to be a very comfortable melting pot. Certainly, in the last number of years. Which you know, I think going back to the other question that which Andrew was talking about uh, about the sort of crisis and collision in French history and Parisian history. Again, I think one of the things which we ought to bear in mind in that discussion is that Paris is the home of the rights of man. Uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen, which is the, basically what uh, the uh, United Nations Declaration on Human Rights is based on, did, was originated in Paris in the French Revolution in 1789. And in some ways that gives a characteristic to um, uh, uh, Parisian politics, that it sets a horizon of expectation to live up to, if you like. And of course, you know, Parisians, like all of us, are normal people. They can't always live up to their, uh, their ideals. And a lot of these clashes are about, uh, uh, and in the language uh, of rights, which is, uh, as I say, originally a sort of very Parisian thing. This integration within uh, Paris, you see very clearly, you can see lots of uh, centres which are Italian or, or, or Portuguese or, or, or whatever. Uh, but it's, you're right. I mean, there, with the immigrant population in recent years, there has been less of, uh, of integration. And it's also characterised by a lot of the integration taking place just outside Paris uh, in its, uh, its uh, banlieue, in its uh, suburbs, which I know Andrew in particular is an expert on. And Chris, it's interesting even that also reminds us of the way Paris is divided into these 20 arrondissements. It has its quarters and each part of France or each part of Paris almost has its own identity and its own attractions. And, uh, you know, you could, again, uh, spend your time exploring any single one of them. But if I have just one choice, well, there'd be several candidates. One would have to be the Butte de Montmartre. Another would be a topic that hasn't been mentioned so far, and I think should be Paris underground. I mean, the mythology of 19th century Paris um, is perhaps nowhere more mythic, apart perhaps from the insurrectional barricade, something I feel we should have talked about more, uh, the whole revolutionary heritage of Paris. Paris is the great revolutionary city, um, but something that's even more mythic, uh, than that is Paris underground, the catacombs photographed by Nadal, the sewers, 
talked about at length by Victor Hugo in Les Miserables, not just talked about, but staged as a major setting for the narrative. And then later, the invention of the metro, of all the things that go on there or went on there. Proust has a very interesting line on the Parisian metro, but I won't go into the details of that here. Uh, but if I bring the question back up above ground, which where I think you wanted it to be, Talking about the amount of time that in my Parisian life, if I can call it that, uh, one of the places I spent a lot of that time is the 11th arrondissement, uh, broadly on, on an axis from the Place de la République uh, to the Place de la Bastille, both of these places, of course, saturated in French political history, uh, but also including, if you stretch it out a bit, and this is the bit, the element of it, of the picture that I want to particularly foreground, uh, the area of the Canal Saint-Martin. And as I was saying, the Canal Saint-Martin, if I have to select a favorite spot in Paris, it's that one. It's also drenched in French politics and the 1848 insurrections. One of its banks was used as a refuge for revolutionaries that were pursued by government troops. Um, but the banks of the canal also became a place of popular sociability from roughly the 1840s onwards. The canal was also lovingly painted by two of my favorite 19th century painters, Alfred Sisley and Stanislas Lepine. And it's also the area where Flaubert's immortal Bouvary Pécuchet meet while out walking during what Flaubert calls, and perhaps only Flaubert, could have called the sad days of summer. And if I were to write another book about Paris, uh, the one I would love to write is a short book on the Canal Saint-Martin in literature and painting. Very good. And Andrew, we're almost out of time, but you get the real sense there listening to that, how how much of the city you can, ex how much of the history comes from walking around and exploring and, and visiting these. And I wonder, where would you take our listeners? I take you outside my window. I'm sitting in the Rue Pernetti in the little atelier I use as an office. And I love that phrase the Colin used before, layered chunks. If I look outside my window, there's a Turkish kebab shop. There's subs ladies with, with, from the sub-Saharan sub Africa walking around in, in a gear with the kids. Um, it, there's a Portuguese cafe down the bottom of the road, which um, sells wine illegally until two in the morning. Um, and there's a lot of Romanians around here as well. And, and I've been writing a book about France and Romania recently. So that's been of interest. I've been studying Romanian and shocking people with how bad my Romanian is in, in this cafe. So you can walk around the city, do the famous old flannery kind of thing. But actually just sitting still and having a look around you, you've got all these overlaying atmospheres. And that's that's why I live here, and that's why you know it's going to be hard to for the French authorities to deport me. You know. Well, I think that's an excellent note on which to end our discussion. As I say, we could have spent hundreds of hours exploring the history of Paris. So much to explore, but I think I hope that we've given you a little sample and a little taste for it. And uh, when travel resumes uh, uh, fully, hopefully uh, it'll be one of those places on our on our list to go. Uh, my thanks to our brilliant panel of experts, Professor Colin Jones. Professor uh, Christopher Prendergast Professor Andrew Hussey and we also heard, 
earlier from Professor Joan Dijon, uh, Dr. Mary McAuliffe and Professor David Garriak. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Susan Cal, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Next week, we'll be finding out how a group of weekend scientists in 1859 changed our relationship with time forever. We'll be investigating the life and legacy of the Red Prince and studying murder maps of historical crime scenes. So join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history. On News Talk.